Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Beyond the Arc podcast. Today I'm here with uh, Jackson Lloyd. Hey, what's going on guys? Yeah, so thank you Jackson for coming on. So today we're going to do uh, like a playoff tiers pod with the playoffs coming right around the corner. Um, so Jackson, what was kind of your like mindset coming into it? Like how were you, how were you able to like put this list together? So there was some things that I found difficult to kind of hone in on exactly how I wanted to define where I placed the team. For example, uh, I just did the tiers as title contender, secondary contender, playoff contender, which is just like solid playoff team, and then playing contender. But for example, I put the Lakers in play in contender because while I think that maybe they end up having the better than 20, 22nd best odds, whatever it is to win the championship, if they get healthy, just with so much uncertainty in their standing, how healthy is LeBron? How healthy will Anthony Davis be over these next few games? I just kind of left them there as like a default ranking. And then there are certain teams like the Brooklyn Nets. I have them in my title contenders tier in the Eastern Conference, even above teams like the Toronto Raptors and Chicago Bulls, who obviously are higher in the standings. It's just something that I think it's kind of touch and go and based on feel and just how you kind of view the team moving forward, I guess. Yeah. The, the thing for me was I noticed like the, the, I think we've all known this throughout the whole year, but the depth in terms of like who can come out of each conference is actually like pretty crazy. Um, like for me, you have Brooklyn in your, I guess your title contenders too. I have him like in my third tier, but I think, I just, I think the, I have like four or five teams that are probably, going to be above them but like Brooklyn Nets still have like Katie and Kyrie so like the I just think the depth this year is pretty crazy and it's pretty uncertain to who's going to come out uh on top yeah it really does feel like it's more open I think that part of that is like a symptom of they're no longer being that juggernaut team like the Warriors now the counter to that is the Phoenix Suns would consider themselves a juggernaut and based on how they're performing, how they're playing, they kind of meet that criteria. But like you said, it's not, I wouldn't be surprised if say six, eight, you know, anywhere in that range of teams made a conference finals, made the NBA finals, even won a championship. I think it's a really deep field and really an exciting time in these next few months. Yeah, definitely. So we can hop right into things. So uh, who is in your titles contenders tier? Should I just list both conferences? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so in the Eastern Conference, the top flight title contenders I have as the Milwaukee Bucks, Philadelphia 76ers, and the Brooklyn Nets. I was on the fence about the Celtics. I kept them in the secondary contender bucket, given the Rob Williams news. We'll see how the knee progresses, but that's subject to change. I felt bad having the Heat as a Tier 2 team just because of how well they've played this season, regardless of who's in the lineup. They're getting rotation minutes from a wide array of guys. Gabe Vincent, Max Struess had a big game yesterday against the Boston Celtics. I wasn't able to catch the entire game, but he was making some huge defensive plays in the fourth quarter, and that kind of encompasses what they are as a team. Just any given night, I think that their preparation and attention to detail has been almost unmatched and it's why they're towards the top of the Eastern Conference standings despite Kyle Lowry missing time with personal reasons, Bam Adebayo missing time, even guys like Jimmy Butler and Tyler Harrell being in and out of the lineup. And then 
for the Western Conference, I have the Phoenix Suns and the Golden State Warriors in my top tier. The Warriors have been pretty average for the last half of the season or so. My justification for this, them being in the top tier, is that they basically haven't had their four or five best players healthy this season at the same time. And I think that they kind of deserve a chance to prove themselves once they finally get healthy, if they get healthy. I'm just going to assume they are. We got the Steph Curry update today that he may get one regular season game in, but it's looking like he's going to miss the remainder of the regular season and be ready for the playoffs. And then in that next tier, I have the Utah Jazz, Dallas Mavericks, and Memphis Grizzlies. This was tricky because of the Jazz up and down season. The Mavericks are surging. And then, of course, the Grizzlies, much like the Miami Heat, um, even when they're without John Morant, I believe they're either 18 and two or 19 and two now. Don't quote me on that. I may be incorrect. Yeah, I think that sounds about right. 18 and two. And then you mentioned earlier how I went about the list for the Western Conference, especially. It's so tricky because I have the Denver Nuggets just as a playoff contender, playoff team, whatever you want to call it. But if they got either of Murray or Michael Porter Jr. back, that could change their trajectory. Doesn't sound like Zion's going to play, but again, that could change the Pelicans' outlook. And then you have the Clippers, Paul George is back, resting the elbow tonight against the Bucks. both of those teams kind of treated this game as a schedule loss. So we'll see what happens. But getting Paul George back, we'll see with Norman Powell, we'll see with Kawhi Leonard, just several impact players that may or may not be able to leave an imprint on this playoff run kind of gives it some, a wide range of outcomes, I would say. Yeah, I definitely agree. Like, especially if the Clippers get healthy, that's going to be a super, super dangerous team. Even with PG coming back. Yeah, like that, if that's the Clippers be... got fully healthy, they'd basically be a juggernaut. I would even go as far as saying they'd be the best team in the Western Conference if you got 95, 90% Kawhi Leonard. Not saying that that's likely or what I think will happen, but just kind of optimistic outlook. Yeah, definitely next year. That's a team to watch out for. Um, for my list, I was a lot more... Um, I guess concise. I, I made my, especially up top for me, it was a lot uh, smaller. So I kind of did it like true, true contenders in my mind that like um, that I would probably like bet on them like reaching the final. So I only have Milwaukee um, and Phoenix. And I kind of want to go in depth into into them a, a little bit. So I think Phoenix, I, I'm a big fan of Phoenix as a team. I just, I like their, their sharpness in terms of um, you give them like any sort of like advantage and they're going to exploit it at some, one point or another. It, it, it even like, it's not even like they'll exploit it throughout the game. Like they'll, they'll like wait on it a little bit and then end of the game in the clutch because they've been one of the clutch, best clutch teams in the, in the league. Um, they'll hone in on that and really, and like really, really take you apart, um, which I like. So I think that offensive execution is definitely going to translate. And then also I like how they have, um, they can play eight and even when teams go small. Like their best lineup is when you have the the seven footer in, um, just to clean things up around the rim, rebound, which I like. I wish Aiden did a little more offensively in terms of uh, post up stuff. I think that would be a nice little dimension besides having just like Chris Paul and Devin Booker just having to create um, out of the pick and roll. Um, but yeah, Phoenix is definitely a really really good team. I like. Um, so what what are your thoughts on Milwaukee? So it's been an interesting season for Milwaukee. They justifiably entered the season, I would say, as a top two team in the East. I guess that 
the whole Kyrie James Harden situation in Brooklyn kind of skewed things. But I think that right now they should be viewed as the Eastern conference favorites. And I think that you made a fair point how your top, top, top tier is just those two teams. I would say that when I put Philadelphia and Brooklyn up in that upper tier, that they're definitely more question marks with those teams because James Harden has been very inconsistent Philadelphia is really only going seven or eight deep. The Brooklyn Nets across their guard and wing positions, they're kind of lacking a little bit of size. They got a lot of shooting now, but just different lineup configurations they got to figure out. Ben Simmons back is a question mark. And here come the Bucs playing some of their best ball of the season. Overtime win yesterday against the Nets. I think that some of their kind of more minute, minor midseason moves have paid off at least to some extent, I feel like Serge Ibaka has been decent for them. I haven't been able to hone in on him exclusively, but I'd say that he's kind of been a solid stopgap option. And when you're nursing Brooke Lopez back to health, Bobby Portis can't do it all. I think that's big. Obviously, Giannis is a big man himself. He can play the four or the five and just he's a complete monster. And then you have guys like Javon Carter. He was playing high leverage minutes for them yesterday. And I don't know kind of how that back end of Wes Matthews, Javon Carter, Jordan Nora will kind of shake out in the playoffs. I imagine that if one of those guys get minutes, it would be Matthews. But they kind of have a core group of guys that they can depend on. Their top four or five players, you can put them in pen for 35, 38, 40 minutes in a playoff game. But then I think they have a pretty decent nucleus of guys like a Wesley Matthews, like a Bobby Portis, that they can contribute They've had experience with the team and just depending on the different series that they could possibly play, there are scenarios where Brooke Lopez might play the most minutes at the five next to Giannis, or there are scenarios where Bobby Portis might play the most next to Giannis or even Serge Ibaka. So there's different ways that they can kind of plug guys in and figure that out. And I think that they're simultaneously just a, they're a force of a team. They kill you on the glass. Obviously when Giannis is able to drive and kick, creates so many open looks for his teammates. They got two good off the bounce guys and Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday. That's kind of their offensive identity, but they're a smash mouth team at the same time. One of the best rim protection teams clean it up on the glass. And I just think that they have so many strengths and yet they have such a wide array of kind of styles that they can turn to if necessary. Yeah, I definitely agree. The versatility of style um, they definitely have with like, Giannis the four or five they can play big all those sort of things and I one thing I really like about them is just they they like understand themselves you know like I think last year a little bit um in the regular season or at times when I would watch them like Giannis would sometimes force things a little bit in my opinion and I think now it's really like the it, game feels like it's coming really easy for him now like when he doesn't have something boom moves it to Middleton or Holiday let them go to work and they and they've done a good job of that this year um, so like just like being able to like understand like who they are individually and as a team, I think they're really good in that aspect, which is going to bode well for them moving forward. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. I would actually agree with that completely because I think that at various points early in the Brooklyn series, you could kind of feel the burden growing, the pressure mounting, but then they got past that series and it just felt like they were a completely new team. Giannis gets hurt in the Eastern Conference Finals. They're able to shake that off. Miraculously, he's able to play almost at 100% in the finals. And then 
you know, the comparison to make this year is the Utah Jazz. You almost feel a, a similar concept with them where everything, every one of their past failures is kind of coming to fruition, coming to the forefront. And it's at a point where they're either going to get past it or they're, they're going to crumble because let's say last season, Milwaukee loses to Brooklyn 4-0 or 4-1 or whatever it nearly was if they don't pull off that crunch time game three win at home. Maybe they fire Coach Bud. Maybe they look for trading a Chris Middleton or probably not a Drew Holiday since they acquired him before the season. But just the dynamic of how teams operate if they have a quote-unquote embarrassing loss in the playoffs. So I kind of view those teams as an analog to each other, not in terms of quality. I think that the Jazz are very good. Obviously, we can't compare them to the defending champ Bucks, But just in the, the Bucks are the example of kind of making it out of the fire, whereas the Jazz are at a point where if they don't make a conference finals or finals run, I think that we're looking at a completely different core next year for them. Yeah, so is Utah in your, like, second tier of teams? Did you list them? Yeah, so I had them below Phoenix and below Golden State. I know that Golden State is free-falling in the standings, but as I mentioned before, I just think that with Curry, Draymond, healthy, Clay Thompson, he's playing very free right now. He's launching everything. We'll see how that goes. But the emergence in March of Jordan Poole, I think that when Clay came back, it took a, a few weeks for him and Wiggins to get adjusted. Less so for Wiggins. He hasn't adjusted quite as well as I would have hoped. I do think that a lot of that is on Clay Thompson, just when you are a high usage player, just forcing him back into the lineup and he's going to get his shots. He's a Hall of Fame player, franchise legend. It's just going to be hard to incorporate him into the flow midseason. And I think that that's also another scary aspect of the Denver Nuggets is bringing Murray and bringing MPJ, excuse me, MPJ back to a lesser extent in a playoff run, in a playoff push. That's going to be tricky. But I still believe in the Warriors. And then long way answer to answer your long answer to your question. Uh, I have the Jazz, Mavericks, and Grizzlies in that secondary contender tier. I really don't know what exactly to do with these three teams. I feel like if you ask me any given day, I could put them in any order because sometimes I watch the Mavericks and just see the shots that Luka Doncic is getting for DFS and uh, Reggie Bullock. And obviously Tim Hardaway Jr. is probably not going to return this season, but their guard rotation with Brunson and Spencer Dinwiddie is finding its form. And they've kind of found a new identity post Porzingis. Sometimes you watch them and it's just incredible. Just the, they can just go full throttle on teams and get out to 20, 25 point leads. And then the Grizzlies, very unique team, very dependent on crashing the offensive glass, playing with pace, playing with tempo. Um, I wish I had the statistic in front of me, but when they shoot above 37% from three, they've been a really, really dominant team this season. That's kind of the barometer for them. And I guess it makes sense just with kind of their roster makeup. Um, you know, they got to find the scoring punch that way. It's been a weird season for Jaron Jackson Jr., where he's probably been one of the best five to seven defenders in the league. But then at times, I feel like the jump shot's been uncharacteristically scattershot. So those three teams, very close. I could put them in any order, but I would have the jazz at the top of that list as it currently stands. Okay. Yeah. Um, so for my second tier, it's uh, definitely a lot shorter. Once again, I, my kind of thinking was 
Um, this tier, it's like, I, I, I don't put them at the level of Milwaukee and Phoenix, obviously, because I think those two are just, they're just so solid. But I only have Celtics, the Celtics and uh, the Mavericks here. Um, so like, oh, yeah, interesting. Just, yeah. So I have. So you're lower on Warriors, yeah. Heat, Philly. Yeah. All That's of them. Yeah. I'm a lot, I'm a lot. I'm a lot lower on them, but I think also part of it is just the um, the depth of this year. Like I said earlier, is so high that like I feel like there just gets huge jumble. Like at my third tier, especially, but I, I see the Celtics in Dallas like above um, those two for Dallas. I I just like their their strong foundation because they can. If you think about them in theory, so they they on offense you have Luca's spread pick and roll um, that you can lean on any time, but then now what they have is um, you put two on the ball against Luca. You get someone in the short run. Now you're playing four on three with an advantage with like Jalen Brunson, Spencer Dinwiddie, who are who are gonna attack the basket. They're gonna um, they're gonna be able to do things with the ball in their hands, which I really like. Um, and I think that's all you really need, especially when you have uh, when you have Luca. And then defensively, they're a really tough team in terms. Of they just play boxes and elbows. They do a good job of like xing out on the weak side. And I think actually moving on Porzingis kind of helps in that in that area um, because when they would play Dwight Powell and Porzingis together. Porzingis would get caught on that like X out on the weak side and he's like you know seven seven three mobility's not really there yeah versus um, the Clippers then, and stuff like that I yeah. feel like that was an issue yeah but now you have just Dwight Powell at the five and then at the four you have like either like Maxi Kleba or like Dorian Finney-Smith who are going to get out um with a decent close out and like prevent prevent guys from just like blowing by them whereas Porzingis would just get caught standing up and then um Dallas has to rotate for like the third time um, so I just I think they're such a solid team, and you have just Luca at the helm. Um, I think this is the year that Dallas is gonna gonna break out, and they're gonna do some real damage in the playoffs. And then for the the Celtics, obviously not having Robert Williams is really gonna hurt them. Um, their margin for error shrinks a little bit, um, but I think they're gonna be able to replace kind of what he does on both ends just by committee. So in terms on offense, he's a very low usage guy, like I think eleven twelve percent usage. Um, but I think Al Horford could do de- could do a decent job of like short roll stuff like that. Um, so I don't think they're gonna miss him in that too much in that aspect. Like it def- definitely helps with connectivity, but you could replace that. The only thing on that end is his lob catching. They have no one to play above the rim to like play finish at all. Daniel Tice, Al Horford are not are not doing that. Um, it hurts them to ask that aspect. But if you know if J- Jason Tatum, Jalen Barrett could, are gonna continue to shoot the way they have it might not really matter um and then defensively uh yeah like you lose kind of like the him flying around um so they're gonna have to be really really tight on their switches um which sometimes which they are for the most part but one thing i've noticed is like actions especially involving jason like tatum and jalen brown they're not the best because both of them are not always the most attentive because you know they're like they're hot high offensive load players um so but they just they need to be really sharp uh in terms of the communication and like handing guys off on switches and i think they'll i think they'll be in a really good spot but yeah so my my tier is definitely a lot shorter than yours but i think those two teams are a little bit ahead of uh like teams like the heat and the sixers things like that i like what you said about the mavericks in my opinion i think they've been one of the better teams of playing the gaps and showing star players a crowd and help just from as a reference points, like the Minnesota game, I think that they largely did a really good job on Cat, on D'Lo, on Anthony Edwards. And uh, really, I feel like every single time that they're going against one of these high usage superstars that 
you got to shut the water off, or I should say, you're going to try and shut the water off. You're not going to completely suppress their production, but you just got to limit what they can do, make it difficult and live with the results. I think they've done a great job of that. I think that they're one of the more aggressive defenses. I think that the way they defend is kind of chaotic. I think that while I wouldn't consider them a team that has a surplus of versatile defenders, they got guys like Kleber, DFS, where you kind of have some cross-positional flexibility. And I think that gives you a unique opportunity to shuffle guys in and out of a matchup or put this guy on that guy, put Kleber on the four, put DFS on the two. And Luca, not a great defender, but I think that's something he does do well. And I think that this helps for the Mavericks specifically is he can guard two to four decently, assuming it's not a you know quick jitterbug, jitterbug guard. I think that he can credibly guard them. He can switch a bit across the forward positions, especially if he's guarding a Harrison Barnes type you're not going to feel completely overmatched. And I think that him rebounding his position helps, especially when it's paired with him igniting their uh, offense off misses, especially with them being a team that largely doesn't play with too much pace. I would say that Brunson is probably the biggest like enhancement to the pace of their offense because Luke is a very methodical player. Whereas I think Brunson kind of tries to push the, push the boundary and push the tempo. Yeah, Brunson and Dinwiddie are both pretty good at that, just like getting in and just pushing the pace a little bit, which I think is another dimension that um, those two add, which they didn't have the years before. So like, yeah, for kind of with Dallas, like I think in years prior, like sometimes they would just play way too slow, you just get like bogged down in the half court. But then now they have like the other aspect to it where Dinwiddie and Brunson can also like push it a little bit and they can get some offense there. Um, so let's move on to... I guess like our well not for for you not uh for you not the third tier but for like kind of like my third tier so like heat philly um brooklyn all like, the teams uh, i had in my tier yeah you broke yeah yeah, yeah um so let's see which team should we start i guess we can start with brooklyn um i'm kind of rethinking maybe brooklyn should be a little bit uh higher my only thing for them is they just they're kind of, they have to play kind of small sometimes like they're they're starting line it's like Kyrie, seth curry and Bruce Brown all at the same time, which um, like Kyrie, Curry, Brown are all like six four and below. Uh, which I, and I know Brown's like a, a good defender; he can guard up a little bit, but sometimes asking just, a lot of your backcourt yeah. in some of those matchups. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then you come in, you're playing like Dragic, like at the kind of like at like the two or the three, and like Patty Mills. Like they just have a lot of small guards, um, and then for me, it's just asking a lot of. Duran and Kyrie on the offensive end, um, which I mean, they, they can do because they're just all world uh, talents, but I wish they just had a little more defense they can throw or defense, but also guys who could play like both ends, like two, like two way guys. Uh, I don't feel like they really have that. Like Bruce Brown, like he'll, he'll hit the occasional, like leave him wide open three, but like teams are not scared of that at all. And then for Drummond, like I, him as a roller, I don't, I don't really buy it. And I think, that if they had a roller, that would really open up their offense, but they don't really have that. With Brooklyn, it's tricky because their path to a championship is going to be so difficult because I would have to double check the standings as the games are going on right now, but it's a possibility they're playing the Bucks first round. And that could end up being 
the NBA champion, the hardest series the Bucks play. And you mentioned the size. Drogic is basically a combo guard now. Patty Mills is essentially an off guard. Uh, quietly had a very horrid stretch, I would say, for the past two months or so. And uh, as for them lacking that role, man, I think that at times that can be Claxton, but he's dealing with health issues, endurance issues. Sometimes it doesn't seem like Nash trusts him. Lately, I think his minutes have been in an uptick. He's playing well. Um, as for Andre Drummond, again, I'll echo your sentiment. I think that most of his value is offensive rebounding and just how big of a body he is. I think that he gives them someone who can credibly handle some of the bigger players. And they kind of have a interesting mix-up of players beyond that in the front court with LaMarcus Aldridge has been dealing with injury. James Johnson has been on the back end of that rotation. I'm hoping that Simmons gets healthy and can take those minutes because James Johnson is just not my cup of tea at this point. I think he's always been a pretty skilled ball handler for that point forward type. But again, when you get up there in age, some of these misses he has at the rim are perplexing. He had a weird foul uh, yesterday against the Bucks in transition where he fouled them in the bonus. And that's just kind of a boneheaded play that personally, I think a coach would bench a younger player like a Kessler Edwards for, but Johnson has more rope. And then I think that Blake Griffin is, a little decent still. I think that he shot horribly in the first part of the season, but since then has played a lot better, but there's just not really a spot for him at this point in time, because you don't want to play him at a four because again, he's a very <laughs> defenses completely ignore him, even when he's shooting it well and what they're getting from Drummond and Claxton right now. And Bruce Brown is almost an extension of that big man rotation because uh, while he's 6'4", like you said, kind of guard size, decent handle, he's always around the dunker spot fighting for offensive rebounds. When he rolls, he can roll into a floater. And that push shot is basically – that's how he eats. That's how he makes his money. And they just have a really interesting um, kind of front court rotation. I like what you said about the two-way players, but the way I would look at it is everybody in their front court, I think, can play a role – at the same time, almost every single one of those guys has a glaring weakness. I think that last year, and Bruce Brown said as much, that it was an issue when Brooke Lopez and Giannis were guarding him because just the size advantage and also their ability to roam off of him and help can just clog up the offense. And they're interesting to watch because they have all those guys in the front court and they have such a tiny backcourt with so much ball handling, so much offensive skill. You're just hoping they can get to middle of the pack defensively. But certain mashups in the uh, playoff rounds could definitely exploit their lack of size. Yeah, it's just, yeah, like you said, just you put like a Blake Griffin or James Johnson in, but they can't shoot. You're giving the defense kind of like a, a way, a way to, out. Yeah, way out, exactly. Uh, Kessler Edwards is one guy kind of like because he can shoot it a little bit and, you know, he's decent size. Um, but it's clear, like, I guess Nash doesn't really trust them that much because he's, he's gotten some DMPs, like, coaches' decisions. He's, he played uh, in their game against the, the Bucks the other day, but uh, it's still, like, he, he's, like, a second-round two-way rookie, you know? Like, that's what you're going to really bank on. I think he's the guy that is probably a 2023 guy where if he's making plays next playoffs, I could see. But I was wondering if they were going to convert his deal because I believe you're not playoff eligible. Oh, yeah, you... they didn't convert his deal, so he's not even... Yeah, so I was thinking the only two guys that they could 
conceivably cut are probably Johnson and Griffin. And I don't know if that they would cut a Hall of Fame or borderline Hall of Fame player like Blake Griffin, like LaMarcus Aldridge. I think that Nash likes his offensive post-up skill set. So I think he's more of a future guy. Same with Cam Thomas. Yeah. Um, what was I going to what was I going to say? Oh, I lost my train of thought. Okay, well, we can just move on. Um, we can do a little bit about the Heat um, and Philly. I know you, you're kind of a you're a little higher on Harden than what kind of what the consensus is going on right now. I'm starting to doubt what I've said. I, <laughs> I'm, I still believe in him, like, moving forward. I think this is kind of his Chris Paul 2018-2019 season where it's just – it's a complete mess. They're still a good player, but you're watching it and you're like, this is not the player we've been watching for the last six, seven years. Um, I think that Harden's play ultimately decides the East because if he plays like James Harden, historically two MVP caliber players together typically make a run or win a championship. However, if he is a all-star caliber player let's just ballpark and say he's the 20th best player in the league right now based on current performance the philadelphia 76ers don't have enough because they're asking quite a bit of niang every night i feel like they're giving minutes to milton or cork just trying to get something from one of those guys and danny green's going to play his 20 minutes he's going to be serviceable he's going to be solid but Regression has even come for him. I'm not too concerned with the three-point dip because he's probably going to shoot 37 38% in the long run. But Father Time is undefeated. Danny Green, Danny Green, I said Danny Granger. That was a blast for the past. But um, he's obviously taken a slight step backwards as well. And the Drummond deal, the Seth Curry deal, and the Harden trade, I feel like those are kind of – those are the moves that you don't care about until they matter. You don't miss those players until you think, oh, my gosh, we need them. And obviously, I think the Harden deal is a deal that you make every time. I think that you can quibble about the draft capital given up. But I think that it was smart to go all in, quote unquote, on Joel Embiid's prime, especially with how checkered his injury history is. But it started off so incredible they were playing out of Chicago action a lot getting downhill I think that Harden and Embiid have been a pretty good fit especially in ball screen but I just think that James Harden I think he's still quick I just think he can't jump at all when help steps up they can strip him a lot or I should say if the defender stays attached they can strip him the help defender can block his shot a lot more or less a sixth of his two-point attempts are being blocked last time I checked so I don't know. I think that Hardy can get back to close to where he was as a player. I'm starting to question him still being in that upper tier superstar category of player. And I think that when you're talking the top of the top of the top, the margins matter. And being the being an all NBA first team guy versus an all NBA third team or fringe all-star guy is just all the difference in the world. And just to clarify what I said, I don't have Harden on my All-NBA team. I just kind of view him currently as All-NBA, All-Star type. I really don't know what to make of his season today, and I'm pretty worried myself. Yeah, I'm not going to beat a dead horse with Harden's finishing, but it, I, when I watch it, I'm like, it's either it's either a foul or he just he just throwing something up. 
And it's either I, a power finish, a foul, or he just gets clobbered. Yeah, and gets blocked, and it's just a mess. And then doesn't There's, get back. Doesn't get yeah. back on defense after. And then it's that's like, the thing. He's probably one of the worst transition defenders in the league. A lot of times when he takes a three point attempt, you'll see uh, on the broadcast he kind of points it out, and they just match up that way. I think that when you're going full go in a playoff setting, that can kind of be smart, and they can kind of save energy increase minute workload that way and then buy their time like that and to just match up and guard them in the half court that way. But a missed layup is the same thing as a turnover and hardens. I want to say 55, 57% at the rim this season, 36, 37, 38% from floater range. If he's missing several of those shots a game, you can basically tally that as a turnover. That's going to kickstart the team's transition going the other way. And I think that it started off really hot in Philadelphia. I still believe in kind of the nucleus of the team. I just have so many questions right now that I bumped Milwaukee ahead of them. I think that Milwaukee is kind of rightfully made themselves the favorites, especially with how they were kind of playing possum for the first half of the season. But I think that as they get healthy, as the playoffs come near, that they're the team to be in the East. Yeah. Uh, last thing on Philly, and then we can move on to Miami. It's just, they're just having, they have no dynamicism outside of like, I guess Maxi sometimes like, but Maxi's probably only going to swing. Like you mean like athleticism and yeah, just like athleticism, and... some sort of like explosiveness, you know, like no one on their team really has that besides Maxi and, I don't defensively max there's questions there and his shot sometimes is a little it's hit or miss. Um, but yeah, we can move on to uh, Miami. So like Miami for me is just, I don't really see where they're like sustainable offenses coming from. Obviously in the defensive end, like when they, when they turn things up a little bit, like they're going to be a really, really tough team to score. Like it's going to be like, no, you can't really mismatch on anyone when they're playing their better defensive lineups. But then when you do that, where's your offense going to come from? Like, you're not going to have Tyler here on the floor. You're not going to have Duncan Robinson on the floor in theory. Um, but then even like Tyler hero, sometimes like he, he is a shot creator uh, or he's a tough, he's like a tough shot maker. He's not really a guy that's going to generate advantages for you. Um, and then, you know, movement shootings, movement shooting, it's going to be a little bit hit or miss sometimes. And teams have kind of like honed in on how to guard like the Duncan Robinson's and Max Bruce is a little better. Um, so it kind of just falls on the Jimmy Butler, in my opinion. If he can like tap into some more like uh, mismatch hunting, um, maybe they can get something there, kind of like his twenty twenty bubble run. But then I was I was actually watching back some of uh, um, some of the, like highlights from then. Like his mid range jumper back then was hitting a lot more than it is now. I don't I don't know what happened. Like I don't I don't really know where his shooting was because like even his, uh, even before like his his Minnesota. Uh, six or, and like the Philly years, like his three point jumper, like he would he would shoot them, but now he's not even like looking to shoot them at all. So I don't know how your jumper just like somehow regresses over time, but it happened for Butler. I don't, yeah, just the sustainable offense. I don't know where it's coming from. I think defense they're going to be good, but we'll see. Yeah, with Miami, I've been monitoring as time goes on, not only Bam's aggression level, but how willing and capable he is at taking pull-up jumpers and the results haven't been great. I actually should have checked this before the podcast, but I believe he's around the 30th percentile pull-up jumpers and he's only taken, I think around 75 this season, but I may be wrong on that. Um, 
I like what you said about their defensive lineups versus some of their, let's say, quote unquote, you know, you're playing your top four guys. They're playing Butler, Bam, Lowry, Harrow. I was actually intrigued by some of the lineup data I was kicking around because their performance with those lineups has been kind of scattershot versus if they just have three of basically any combination works. But I think that there might be some merit to playing all of Lowry, Harrow, Duncan Robinson together on the court just gives you, again, Lowry can guard up. He's very strong, but he's not the same defensive player he was three or four years ago. And then I would put Harrow and Duncan Robinson as guys you can kind of pinpoint a matchup on, switch hunt with them and go from there. And it just puts so much strain and stress on whoever is playing the four, whether it be Martin, Tucker, Butler. Um, obviously, Bam Adebayo, he does so much defensively. Just he's able to switch out and guard, contain ball. Uh, I will say to nitpick Bam a bit, I think that there is some diminishing returns with how much they're switching because I think that he's an athletic player. I think that while he's not an elite rim protector, I think he can cause some havoc around there especially if he's coming from the weak side and help. I think that, I don't know, I've been a little underwhelmed with some of his kind of block percentage and rim protection stats on Synergy. And they're a team, I basically echo your sentiment, where they're really good. They can guard anyone. I don't think they can score versus, if it's game five versus Milwaukee and it's 2-2, can they generate enough offense? If they're down 2-1 versus Milwaukee, can they generate enough offense? If they're in a 3-2 series versus the Boston Celtics, can they generate enough offense? And it's cliche, but I, I really do have concerns because, uh, as you said, with the Jimmy Butler jump shooting issues, their best off-the-dribble shot maker is Tyler Harrow. And I would wonder if we did a historical like check of the best off the dribble shot maker on every team of where Harrow would stack up in comparison to some of these other guys, because you look at the Bucks, Middleton, Lakers, LeBron, um, Toronto Raptors, Kawhi, just it's basically almost always an MVP caliber player or an all NBA caliber player. And you're just asking so much of a Duncan Robinson of a Tyler Harrow of a Kyle Lowry in his older age. Yeah. That's what I was saying. Um, about hero like they, they kind of need butler to be that guy or else i don't think they're going to be able to get enough offensively um so yeah we can move on uh i guess to some of the like the memphis utah golden state it's really weird how to format this because like we are our, our tiers were so different like mine are a lot shorter um, i feel like top. they were similar but i broke up mine into two tiers whereas i think you basically put all those teams into three tiers yeah 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 i think that's what it was um, so yeah, so this is kind of like my, I think this is my fourth tier behind the the Heat, Philly, Brooklyn. Um, it's weird how I ended up dividing these almost like East-West a little bit. Uh, but yeah, so I have Memphis here, Utah, Golden State, uh, Chicago, and the Clippers. So this one's a little, little heftier. So who do you have, like, I guess, I like around that. this range? Um, with Chicago, I probably would have been higher on them if we had more of a ballpark on ball's health, because yeah, I think that he's resumed physical activity, but he's not playing live ball yet. And with the playoffs right around the corner, uh, that's a question mark. Let me pull up my list because I didn't memorize this 
next here off the top of my head. So with teams like the uh, kind of Raptors, Bulls that I had in this range, and then the West, it was Nuggets, Clippers. Those two teams were tricky to rank because of their health situation. And then Minnesota Timberwolves and Pelicans. I feel like these teams are also close. It almost comes down to matchup. And yet there are scenarios where I could see Toronto winning a playoff series or Chicago winning a playoff series, or I honestly, I don't see the Nuggets winning a playoff series. I think that Jokic has had an MVP caliber season. I think that he's going to go back to back and win the award. And I think deservedly so. However, they're relying a lot on the back end of their bench. They're relying a lot on those smaller guard types. And I'm a fan of Austin Rivers. Bryn Forbes has been a really good shooter in this league. And Bones Highland has come on strong maybe the last six weeks or so. Almost every single night having a rotation role. But you kind of go top to bottom on these rosters and stack them up in a playoff series. They're just drawing blank in some of these matchups. And I think that... It would be a incredible effort and performance from Jokic and Aaron Gordon and all of them if they won a playoff series. The Clippers are one of the most intriguing teams on this list because they're getting Paul George back and he's never paid, played with Norman Powell. And we saw what they did last season, closing off Utah without Kawhi Leonard. I believe they won game five in Utah and then game six at home. And then they played competitive ball versus the Suns in the Western Conference Finals. And I know that that gets murky with the Chris Paul COVID, but I think that there's a scenario where if the Clippers win the play-in game and they get in the 2-7 series, I think they give themselves a fighting chance. I'm not saying that I'll pick them to win the 2-7 series if they win the play-in game, but do you think that's absurd to see them beating a Memphis, no, for example? No, no. I... In, in some ways, I feel like Clippers are a terrible matchup for Memphis because of their switching. Um, it's going to be really hard. Or it's going to be harder for Jaw to get downhill because um, the rest of Memphis, I don't really see anyone like, I guess their second best breaky guy down type of guy is like Dylan Brooks. And like Clippers are switching anyone on, on Dylan Brooks like when they play their like five wing lineup. So Memphis is going to get really bogged down, um, which is why I'm kind of a little bit lower on them than you because I their offense to me like like I know you have John he's going to play so many minutes um I would let me just say I would probably let me count how many teams I have in my top tier so I have in total I have five teams in my top tier and five teams in my second tier I think that I would put them probably ninth or tenth for title odds and then it gets tricky because if Powell comes back then I might bump the Clippers up to that tier. I don't yeah. know. The, the Clippers the Clippers could be dang good. I, I won't go as far as calling them scary yet, but I think that they definitely have some upward mobility. And I think that, like you said, with Memphis, there's just so many guys. You're not going to contain John Moran, but everyone else, you can keep the ball in front. I think that they're a deep team, but they're not exactly, in terms of high-end talent, I think that they're kind of, I don't want to say lacking because – Jaron Jackson Jr., Desmond Bain had borderline all-star seasons, but it gets really hard and difficult to win in the playoffs at the highest levels, and you have to go through some growing pains. Uh, I was listening to the low post, and 
David Thorpe, he made a point about a lot of young teams, they suffer and you have to go through suffering and you have to struggle at first. And I feel like a series versus Los Angeles Clippers, if it did happen, that would be a scenario where it's a wake up call. You're going to struggle. You have to kick and scream. And ultimately, do they have enough to pull it off? I don't know, because Paul George, if you ask me, he's one of the 10 to 12 best players in basketball, first ballot Hall of Famer. The strides he's taken as a ball handler to becoming one of the best shooters probably in the history of the league and just their willingness to stack chips and stack ammo and just add so much talent onto this team, even in a lost season. I think that it kind of points to their mindset. They want to compete and they want to win a playoff series. This isn't a lost season for them. Paul George came back for a reason. They came back to compete and they're one of the most interesting teams to watch, I think, over the next three to four weeks, however long the first round takes to conclude. Yeah, P, I mean, PG looked really good against that game against Utah. His, shot, his jumper wasn't falling in the first half until, you know, he had his little scoring explosion later on, which brought them back. But he was, like, picking, like, Mike Connolly, like, off the pick and roll, like, getting behind him, like, stripping him. Like his defense Are you worried is, about Conley at all? Um, I mean, a, I mean, a little bit. But I think part of it, too, is that when – See, I don't really know like how good he is just like beating a guy off a switch anymore because teams are going to end up doing that because they don't what they don't want Gobert to roll and then get um, Utah into like their all their swinging swinging stuff um, once they get a little advantage. Yeah, put them so, in the blender. Yeah, but I think teams are uh, are going to be a little bit okay like switching switching on the Conley a little bit. And I don't I don't really know how much I trust them. Mitch on he's had a crazy good offensive season. Um, but like still one like once again, like teams right now, like unless Gobert can start punishing mismatches through offensive boards or seals, I I'm like Utah's offense is greatly diminished. And then we know what's happening on the defensive end with like no perimeter defenders. I don't know how they didn't really bring in some sort of like veteran wing defender that could help them. Like Daniel House, like uh, I don't know. I think that's they're they're just they have some big holes and everyone kind of knows it. Um so Teams and teams are not scared of Gobert at all on, on the offensive end. So, yeah, I think this. I, I I'm a little bit lower right now in Utah. I know you had them a little higher, but yeah, their their offense is a bit diminished, and you need everything you can get when with how not great their defensive personnel is outside of Gobert. With Utah, it's interesting because I don't know how exactly I'm gonna project the playoff series, but I feel like they match up really good with the Warriors. Whereas versus the Mavericks, I think that's a series where the Mavericks would be licking their chops just because of how much pressure they can put on the ball versus Mitchell. I think that Jason Kidd would get really creative cycling through defenders. I assume that DFS would be the primary Mitchell matchup, but I think that he wouldn't be shy and showing him help and showing him bodies. And then, as you said with Gobert, He's almost simultaneously underrated and overrated offensively because he really is one of the better role men probably in the last 15, 20 years. At the same time, unless he's getting on the offensive glass, he's not going to do anything versus a switch. And I know that sometimes I see on Twitter, Utah occasionally misses him on a rim roll. Maybe Mitchell gets tunnel vision sometimes. And I do think that losing Joe Ingles to injury and trade that probably hurts their second units, but I think that there's just a 
kind of a deep underlying issue, a lack of trust where I think that Mitchell doesn't trust Gobert on the offensive end. And I think that Rudy's saying, come on, guys, guard, contain ball, guard the perimeter. This is ridiculous. Everything's a blow by. And I think that I'm still kind of in on the team. Obviously, I had them in that second tier in the Western Conference. But I think that this is this is either going to get fixed or it's going to burst. There's really no tiptoeing around it. Like you said, they didn't really add a wing defender this offseason. They basically ran it back, and they're, they're absorbing the repercussions of that right now. I respect that they didn't make a panic move like trading a Gobert or firing Quinn Snyder. At the same time, on the margins, Daniel House, he's a good player, but that's basically the biggest – or one of the biggest like rotational moves they've made. I don't think that Rudy Gay and Eric Pascal have really been difference makers for them. Uh, we'll see what happens in the playoffs. Some of that bully game is with Rudy Gay, and maybe he plays some good extended minutes at the four. I don't know if I foresee that, but interesting team. I think that in some ways they'll kind of decide how the offseason goes because if Mitchell became available or if Gobert became available, that would just – I think it would put some of the organizations at a halt around the league saying, we got to get this guy, everything in the middle. And that's way down the line, but I'm just thinking like, this is such a huge playoff run for Utah. This is probably their biggest playoff run uh, since they had Malone and Stockton. I maybe I'm forgetting one of those D will and Boozer teams with Okur and AK 47, but this is huge. This is going to decide basically the next generation of jazz fans, the team that they're going to be watching this playoff run decides their fate as a core. Yeah. I think the, the matchup point you made is really good. Like if they play the warriors, like they're a little more motion heavy and not going to really hound on their lack of like perimeter defense uh, personnel. I think that's a good matchup for them, but Dallas and Golden State right now, they're tied 48-29 record-wise. I guess Matt Ricks probably have the tiebreaker right now or something. And quietly, the Warriors are slipping. And they have a – I think they're going to go two or three or one and four to finish the season two. So I would definitely expect the seedings out west to shift. Yeah, so it's going to be pretty matchup heavy. If they get the Warriors, I think they have a they have a shot. they get the Mavericks, I think the Mavericks might cut them up a little bit. Um, you think so? Yeah. Uh, I just, I don't think, I just, the Mavericks offense is just so potent now that they have such a strong foundation. And then I think the boxes and elbows, like the very like shrink the floor heavy scheme is going to give the the Jazz a little bit, a little bit of uh, trouble. Yeah, that's a good point because they have guys like Royce O'Neal where teams are really going to pull in off him, especially if he's in like weak side corner. Yeah. When you're a 10% usage player, teams are really – they're completely fine living with whatever he does. If he scores 16 points in a game seven and beats you, you tip your cap and live with it. I don't want that to sound like a shot. He's a good player. He's their best perimeter defender. And as it currently sits, I'd probably say he's essential to, to their team build. But I would be really intrigued to how Dallas goes into that series – because I think they would throw the kitchen sink at Donovan Mitchell. And I'd be curious at how they kind of treat um, Bojan and Mike Conley kind of as those secondary guys. I think that Utah lost Joe Ingles. 
they added NAW, but he's not a guy that I think will really be entrusted in it too much. So we'll see. Bayer back into the rotation has probably taken a hit, losing the Yang, losing Joe Ingles. Now you're playing Trent Forrest and NAW. I mean, we'll see. Interesting to say the least, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, did we talk about Chicago yet or not? Not really. Uh, we talked a little bit about how I like them if Ball gets back. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And I think that you're pretty hot. I'm I'm not – a lot of people are saying that they're going to get dismantled. I think that they'll probably put up a decent fight. I think they can play six or seven games in the first round. And I think that if Ball comes back, assuming that Patrick Williams continues to make his strides, he had a really good game yesterday versus the Clippers too, um, that they're going to be more formidable. And I think that – they started off the season so good. They were in first for a decent amount of the year, and then the bottom fell out. But I think that there's still a good team in there. I think that they, if everything goes right, they can make some noise. I don't imagine I'll pick them to win a playoff series, but depending on the matchup, depending on who they play, I think that they'll put up a good effort. I think that hopefully the time between the play-in in the regular season in the playoffs gives Levine a chance to get right because I think he's playing injured for the past couple months and we'll see. Yeah. I, I think the, the heart of it is Cruz and ball were such a huge part of their defense early on, like just point of attack, just like not letting teams attack uh, Vucevic downhill. And they lost that for such a long time. And you're just leaving Vucevic out to dry with like, I mean, I would assume it was like a decent defender, but like he's still a rookie. Um, so once you get those point of attack guys back, I think it's really going to help them. Um, Patrick Williams coming back with just some sort of like length, a combination of length and strength on the back line um, is going to help. And offensively, I don't really have too many worries about them. Like I know they live on a very, very tough shot diet with um, DeRozan and Levine, but like throughout this whole season, they've proven they've they can make those um type of shots and then obviously you know you still have Vucevic who I think is I think people underrate him a little bit uh on the offensive end because um he he can he's like he's such a versatile offensive big that you see him like he can attack closeouts and make like really really good decisions um yeah his decision making is really good he can shoot the ball I think his post-ups although he doesn't generate too many fouls um I think he's a pretty pretty solid post scorer they can get some they can get uh, to force a defeat defense and rotation a little bit um, when they bring two to him. Um, so I like their offensive and it's just a matter if they can shore up themselves on the defense. And if ball comes back in Crusoe, um, I think they'll be, I think, I think they actually have a shot because right now they're playing the, the Sixers. I, I think they have a shot to beat the Sixers. I mean, I'm pretty high on them, but um, yeah. So we'll, we'll see with uh, Chicago. Yeah, I think that people completely dismissing them should ease up a little bit. I think that there is a scenario where they advance in the first round and they have two credible ball handlers. If you have ball back, he can play off the catch. I kind of view him as a wing player. And like you said with Vucevic, uh, he's kind of molded his game to fit the ball handling on the team. I think that some of the three-point streakiness is – Mask the fact that he is a very good offensive player. So I agree on all fronts. They're a really interesting team. And I'm glad that they are almost a lock to avoid the play-in and make the playoffs. At the same time, I feel bad for the Cavaliers. Uh, we didn't talk about them, but 
I was going through the teams. Let me ask you this. If you, if the Cavs played a play-in game, I assume the Nets beat them in the 7-8 game. And whoever wins the 9-10 game between, let's just assume for the time being, it'll be Atlanta and Charlotte. Would you pick the either of those teams over the Cavaliers right now? I don't even know the state of Jared Allen or Evan Mobley. I know that he was initially announced to miss three games and then they're going to reevaluate him. So it's so tricky because if they're just missing all these guys, obviously they miss uh, Colin Sexton earlier in the year. They had to deal Rubio because he got hurt. They've had so many crushing injuries. Yeah, that, that's a tough one because the the issue with the Hornets and the Hawks is how like awful their, their defense is. But the Cavaliers, they're actually, I think, offensively, they're pretty stoppable because they have just one guy that's, like, handling the ball. It's like Garland like, against the world right yeah, now. It's, yeah, it's like Garland against everyone. Um, and, I mean, Charlotte and Atlanta might have a shot if they could, like, somehow slow him down because they have no one else to um, to turn to. I mean, they still would have to beat the Cavaliers across two games. But the Hornets and Hawks are also, like, two really, really potent offensive teams. Um and good offense was always going to beat good defense. So, you know, if they get hot, like, they definitely have a shot to beat the Cavaliers. I wouldn't say, even though they're the seven seed versus the Hawks and the Hornets are the nine seed, like, I wouldn't – like, I could see a, a world where, like, the Hawks, like, you know, somehow advance past the, the Cavaliers, which, which kind of sucks because, like, they had such a, a good year. But, like, they, they just have so many holes um, on their team. Like, they have no – they really have no – they're playing, like, Larry Markin at the three, like, um, like starting him there I don't really know how good that is and like yeah no ball handling outside of Darius Garland in any sort of closing lineup yeah it's tricky because they traded for Rondo and Levert both of them have been hurt and I I would say I would estimate they've both been a little subpar relatively speaking I guess Rondo's just a stopgap ball handler you're really only going to play him 10 to 12 minutes and then you might shrink him out of your playoff rotation but Levert I believe he got his foot stepped on coming out the all-star break. And he's had a couple explosive games. He's kind of a enigma as a player. He always gets dribble penetration, but I think that he's one of those guys, a little floater reliant. He's not always getting all the way to the rim streaky shooter. I think he's a good player, but just sometimes you kind of catch the wrong end of variance. And if he's overmatched on this team, for example, they're just missing Jared Allen's rim rolls a lot. And I think that, being able to play both Mobley and Allen at the big spots turns them into just a giant defensively. But you mentioned it, Mark Hennon playing the three. He's had a decent season. He's had some big-time shots for them down the stretches of a lot of games that I've been watching. But all that said, that's definitely not ideal. Isaac Okoro starting to put things together offensively. My hope is that he can attack closeout and hit corner threes next year. He's starting to do that recently. Hopefully it sticks. And then whether the Cavaliers make the playoffs, that would be good for kind of the vibes and overall harmony of the team versus if they miss the playoffs and then they get a lottery pick because the Levert pick is lottery protected, unless I'm mistaken. Uh, yeah, for Levert, um, I think he's a bit of a, like too much of a stop the ball player. And that's been going that's going back to even like his Brooklyn days. Like he does like get the paint touches like you say, but like a lot of the time he's just hunting for his own shot. He's not really looking Yeah, to he has that turkey jerky game. And I feel like it's constantly at, um ending in a contested floater. 
not necessarily a guy who's going to go to the free throw line a ton. Decent pull-up shooter, but a guy you can go under on at times. And I don't know. I Like I said, I don't want to harp on him too much. I think he's a good player, but we've kind of seen that as the injuries mount for the Cavaliers, is he up to the task? I don't know. I don't think that this is kind of a, anything too deep on his ability as a player. I just think that he's an average starter. I think that giving up a lot of protected first for him is completely fine, but I think that just the down downward trend of the Cavaliers' health has kind of been the worst-case scenario for this team and that move and kind of everything that followed. And I feel bad. I think that regardless of what happens over the next week, 10 days, whatever it is, I think that they had a tremendous season and I thought they were going to win 27, 28 games if I wasn't mistaken. So they went dang near, I, they, I, I was about to say they doubled that total, but they're going to win in the mid forties, give or take a few. So really successful season from them either way. Yeah. So for sake of time, so we, let's see who we have. We have, I mean, I guess like Charlotte, Atlanta, Minnesota, the Pelicans, Spurs, Lakers. Let's pick like one more to talk about just for sake of time. Cause we're like about, I think like an hour right now, maybe a little more. I mean, I guess like Lakers, I guess, I don't know if I really want to talk about the Lakers, but. Uh, I say we talk about Hawks or Lakers. The thing with the Lakers yeah. is I don't know how much they want to play in. Actually, this game tonight, I think they play the Pelicans. Yeah, they're, yeah, they the, play the, they're 11 right now. If they lose this game, they are in big trouble because the Spurs are up big right now on Portland. And I think that if it's a scenario where they have to bash their head into a wall versus just sitting LeBron and AD, and moving towards next season, I think that they would kind of opt for that kind of long-term view. Uh, as for the Hawks, they've had a disappointing season. I'm a little disappointed with myself because I was initially a little lower on them. I think they were either third or fourth in the preseason kind of Eastern Conference consensus view, and I caved and I put them fourth or fifth, and then they just They've been one of those teams that they get to 500. They go back to three games under. They get to 500. They go back to three games under. And depending on your point of view, both of these seasons, I would say, were not successful. I mean, the jury's still out for both teams, but I think that the Hawks had higher perception or higher hopes. I think they wanted a home court playoff series this year in the first round. And I think that the Lakers want to be contenders. And here we are a week and a half left in the season. And both teams are do or die. They're going to be in the play in. And for the Lakers, they may not be in the play in. they may be passed by a team, San Antonio Spurs, who recently traded one of their better players. And I thought that that was kind of a give up move. Here we are. They're right in the mix. So I don't know what I don't know what to say that hasn't already been said. I think that uh, obviously LeBron and AD are formidable as a duo, but how can you justify picking them in a series if they get the eighth seed? How can you justify picking the Lakers? Because the way I see that, it's like Suns and Six. And I don't want to discredit them. LeBron, top two player ever. AD, tremendous bubble run, tremendous player consistently on the MVP ballots a couple years ago. 
I still think he's an all NBA caliber player. Hopefully he gets an extended run of health, but just the team with so many minimum contracts. I think that this is finally the point where Russ's madness, his genius and his madness as a player has hit a point where if he doesn't adapt, he might be harmful on the court. He has, he's played better of late, but I just think the dynamic with the two ball handlers with LeBron and Russ has never been there this season. LeBron's a tremendous cutter, whereas Russ is kind of more stationary off the basketball and not a guy who's going to set many screens, even if it's like a flare screen or a pin in, that's not really something that he's going to do too often. So I think that even though that's a star power duo, they've just been so easy to guard. They haven't been elite defensively like years past. And I don't know. I feel like we're wasting breath just talking about the Lakers when who even knows if they'll be in the play in and I'd give them a puncher's chance if they got into the play in and they were healthy. But at this point in the season, we're now in April, it's time to show something and they haven't shown anything really in the last two or three months. Yeah. So I'm from LA. So I, that was Lakers are like the first team I ever watched. So like, I'm always a bit of a, fan for them but like I just can't watch their games like just it doesn't look like they're even trying out there you know like no one's running back like there's so many games where they get down 15 17 points in eight to ten minutes and it's like what is going on and then they make a I feel like they've had a ton of games this season where they have a fake comeback and it's a six-point game with four minutes left and it comes down to if LeBron doesn't score 40 they're probably gonna lose and then LeBron um I don't always love defensive metrics, but something I do like about the EPM is they have the rolling like average for their like plus minus data and their tracking data. And LeBron's defensive EPM graph is just a downward trend. I think that he's definitely shifted his focus towards the scoring title and prolonging his body for a potential playoff run, kind of buying and biting his time like a boxer defensively just, um, basically resting whenever possible limiting movement yeah and then quickly on atlanta i think some of their tendencies from like pre uh nate mcmillan when they're under lloyd pierce are kind of bubbling up a little bit and maybe they've never actually gone just they were winning games so everyone felt a little better but i think a lot of the guys in that team are frustrated by how ball dominant trey young is um and like the types of look he's taking like early in the shot clock and you see like some of those reports servicing, like with the John Collins stuff, like last season. Um, yeah, I just, I just think the team overall is just kind of frustrated, like with the way Trey plays, because the rest of those guys on the team are all really talented guys, like Bogdan, um, Kevin Herter, uh, Collins. Like they're all like really, really good offensive players, and you know they're kind of limited just due to the way Trey Young plays, and I think that spills over to the defensive end because they just don't feel like as cohesive as a team. Um, so I think that's kind of like the the underlying issue a little bit. So they, they definitely have a shot if they get out because this is pretty much the same team as last year. Um, if they just start getting hot shooting wise and they get their, I guess their morale up if they win some games. But I think I think that's kind of the issue. They just don't really, I just, I just don't think they just really like playing with Trey Young. I think that's I think that's what it is. Harsh, but yeah. I, I I would say that has some merit. I actually I can't remember if it was this year or last season, I think that John Collins, there were some leaked reports about his frustration. And then obviously 
hopefully you can't hear my dogs too much. They're barking so much, but uh, Cam Reddish envisioned himself having a bigger role. And then they have other uh, wings who are credible with the ball in their hands, like Porter and Hunter. And the Hawks are a team. I don't think that they're a threat really to do anything. If they faced a Milwaukee or Boston in the first round, they'll probably get routed, but they're just a team specifically for a play. And I think you would want to avoid just with Trey Young, his ability to make shots off the dribble, get into the floater, initiate contact, draw contact, put himself on the line. And whatever someone's opinion of Trey Young is, he is going to, he is an offensive force. And you look at the box score after the game and he has 40 and 10. I know that sometimes it can be difficult to take such a small player so seriously, the blooper reels of his defense and even his effort at time is piss poor, but specifically for Trey Young, he is just a force upon himself. And I think that's a, that's a daunting task in any play in game, single elimination, do or die, win or go home. Oh yeah, no, I definitely like Trey. Like Trey Young is an offensive engine all onto himself. I really like the way he plays. I just don't think the the other members of the Hawks enjoy playing with Trey Young, which I think spills. Yeah, that's totally fair. Aspects. Yeah, I definitely like Trey Young as a player, though. Um, but yeah, let's just let's wrap things up here. So Jackson, where can people find you? So on Twitter, I'm at Jackson Lloyd NBA, and then I also have a podcast myself, the NBA Action with Jackson podcast, which on Twitter is at NBA Action Pod, been a little slower lately, been getting into some more writing stuff and hoping to drop more writing content and kind of increase my podcast frequency heading into the playoffs. Yeah, you know, appreciate you coming on. I, I really like the, the work you put out. Um, yeah, I just really think, thank you for coming on. Appreciate it. It was so much fun. I was so excited when you messaged me and you made my weekend, man. So thank you so much. <laughs> yep, for sure. All right. Take care.